please uh, find in your Bibles Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. I'm going to read from verses 12 to 16 here, considering if the lawless will perish. Pray with me just a moment, please. Lord God, your, your unchanging word is before us, and at times it is hard to understand I pray your word would find soft hearts today, dear God. Comfort and strengthen us weak men by your spirit and teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. So the last time we were in Romans a couple weeks ago, we are we're realizing there is a there is a people here that is being spoken to in Romans 1 and in Romans 2 who seem to be what I decided to call ethically insulated from Paul's charge. Chapter 2 began with the phrase, therefore you are inexcusable. And he also used the same phrase in, in chapter 1, you are inexcusable. And it, it seems that he knows he's speaking to somebody who, who, who can't really hear or receive what it is he's saying. And so he keeps arguing so that it might be heard and it might be understood. So when we read from verse 12, he, he's, he's now introducing an idea that he hasn't talked about really as he tries to press this point. He says at verse 12, For as many as have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. Then he explains his emphasis by saying, For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God. But the doers of the law will be justified. Note those two words, just and justified, and and what close relatives they are of the phrase in chapter 1 when Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God, salvation, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. That word righteousness and, and, and the fact that the gospel reveals that righteousness, that word righteousness and this word just and justified, they're, they're almost like twins. They have the same exact root in them. And it helps you understand the whole thrust of Romans when you realize that, that Paul's desire in his preaching is that the righteousness of God would be revealed. And here we're seeing this concept being referred to, not the hearer's of the law are just in the sight of the God, but the doers of the law will be, you see it, justified. 
made righteous. Or a word I've used occasionally, righteousified. Right? Made righteous. For, he says in verse 14, I'll explain the argument in a moment. When Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written on their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Now let me introduce to you two or the, the, the true categories of favor. The true categories of favor. That'll make sense to you in a moment. In Romans 1.18, says the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. The wrath of God is on the front end of explaining the gospel message. Now look at Romans chapter 2 and verse 11. There is no partiality with God. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. Jump all the way to 11. There is no partiality. What Paul is, is trying to help every hearer understand is that this wrath being revealed from heaven comes with no manly discretion. It comes without any partiality. And I believe it's this idea of partiality that is slightly misleading some of the hearers of the gospel even today. Let me continue to explain what he has said in verse 12 and 13 is not clearly understood by some who are hearing this message. He will render to each according to his deeds. Do you see that? He will render to each according to his deeds. Wrath in accordance, remember the phrase, I think it was two weeks ago, in accordance with the treasure. Some are treasuring up wrath for the day of wrath. How are they doing that? How is somebody treasuring up wrath? They're opposed to reconciliation with God. They're, they're using God's treasure up. What was the treasure God is giving them in? Time. Men have time to hear the gospel. Men have time to repent of their sins. Don't you realize that it is this free time, this living time that has been given to you so that you might repent? Don't waste that treasure on treasuring up wrath for the day of wrath. Part of Paul's audience has a very difficult time accepting that the wrath of God comes against men and women Look at verse 12 again. Whether they've sinned without the law or whether they have sinned in the law. They see God's favor. They see God's salvation. They see God's holding off of judgment 
through a different perspective. And Paul is arguing with them. He's trying to help men understand that, that what they are seeing in terms of final judgment or of the ultimate day of judgment is wrong. You see, they believe they are so unlike the condemned. They believe they are so separate from the condemned, which have been detailed, right, in, in, in chapter 1, the kinds of things that are mentioned. They see themselves so different that they are not in this path of God's wrath. But the Spirit of God, through the writing of Paul, insists that the different and various sinful deeds in them, the deeds in them, the deeds of their lives, prove their lawlessness and will require God's wrath. So they don't understand what they understand is God's ultimate and forever favor is, is a misconception. And again, look at verse 12. This is the, the thrust of what he's teaching. As many as have sinned without the law will perish without the law. As many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. So he's teaching, Paul is teaching against something that has an allowance for sinful deeds, isn't he? Paul is teaching against every sinful deed. And for some reason, many of those who are hearing this preaching do not make the connection between their own sinful deeds and the necessity of the wrath of God. This is why he's insisting on this. He's saying, don't you understand? Your deeds are the things that require the wrath of God. These ones, they agree with what he has explained in terms of the judgment that comes against the ungodly is just. They agree with that. They think that's right. And that's why he began chapter 2 saying, don't you understand? You can agree with this judgment, but don't you know that means you're guilty too? The same thing. He knows, Paul knows, the Spirit is pushing against a belief about their own favor. Every man on earth, for some reason, in, in his own ways, he justifies his existence and his errors and his sins and his life before God. He justifies himself before God. Men do this constantly. But many, 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 if not most, they don't realize they're normal little sins. They're common little sins will result in their negative judgment. Chapter 2, verse 1, you are inexcusable. Chapter 2, verse 6, God will render to each one according to his deeds. Chapter 2, verse 12, as many as have sinned without the law will perish. As many as have sinned within the law or in the law will be judged by the law. And by God's grace, every man who hears the gospel preached begins to realize that a man sits or stands in disfavor before God or in his condemnation before God because of sin. 
because of any little deed of sin. He's saying the deed done against the law is what predicates wrath. And this is where the, the, the primary listener to Paul doesn't get it yet, but Paul is saying every deed, all of the deeds done against law is what predicates the wrath of God. Now listen carefully. When the law keeper, the law keeper coveted, or when the law keeper gossiped, can they see that they have done something offensive to God? Put yourself in an old covenant context, Steve. Go, go all the way back into a Mosaic law context. When someone has coveted or if someone has gossiped, can they see themselves as having offended God? And I believe the answer is yes. The law of Moses details these things. Would they see themselves wrath-worthy? A coveter under the old covenant. Did they see themselves wrath-worthy? No, not really. Why? Why do they escape wrath? Why do they escape judgment? Well, they have a system. They have a law. They have a, they have a way of appeasing God's wrath, don't they? What do they do? They bring sacrifices. So men under the old covenant don't necessarily fear the wrath of God. The man with the light of the law very often does not understand that he has never, ever dealt with the guilt of his deeds. Your average Old Covenant person sees these, these acts of his sinful works, his sinful deeds, makes his prayer, makes his sacrifice, and he's good. He's never dealt with his deeds. I believe that this man has become used to ritual forgiveness. And he sees himself as the elect people of God. He sees himself in a favor because of his relation to Abraham, for example. He's part of the covenant people. So Paul is teaching that there is only one category of favor. There's only one way to be favored by God. What is it? Sin or no sin. If your deeds show you're a sinner, expect the wrath of God. If your deeds show you are righteous, then expect His favor. He is redefining the category, and that's why we're seeing the, the pattern that is connecting men in his thinking about what God thinks of him. God, what do you think of me? What is my hope, God? These men are not correctly thinking that my sinful deed, if there was even only one, would mean perish or judgment. He's not thinking this correctly. Sinlessness is not what these men think make him favorable before God. But this is what is being taught to him. So let me tell you about the natural law's authority. I believe I can make this more clear as we press forward a little bit. The natural law's authority. In order to help these ones who have some strange dependence on maybe their covenant membership and on their, their keeping of law, which Paul goes into more detail later in chapter 2. But here... 
in order to help them see what they have not yet understood, he teaches them what the authority of the natural law is. And, and all I mean by natural law is what he begins to describe in verse 13. Okay? There is a natural law, and this law is, is in a sense held in disdain by the one Paul is talking to. Paul is talking to a person who knows something about law and knows something about the teachings of God over here, okay? But Paul is now talking about a person over here who is working under a different law. That's what's going on in verse 13. So this law over here is a law that the sophisticated guy over here, he looks down on. So here is this low form of law keeping here. And yet what we're going to discover is that the law governing this is just as merciless as the law we're looking at over here. The sophisticated law and the natural law both alike condemn to death. Let's look at how he develops this. Verse 13. Here is why the pagan will perish. Verse 13. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For, here's why that's true, he says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. <coughs> who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves, their thoughts, accusing or else excusing them. Verse 13, doers of the law are justified. Then he illustrates what he means by this with an application from those who follow a crude law, a rustic law, a natural law, if you will. Okay? Verse 14 describes how we recognize that the natural law written on the hearts of those without the Mosaic law is truly a law. That's what, what, what is explained in verse 14. How do we know that these ones without Mosaic law really have a law written on their hearts? How do we know that that's true? Well, this is what he explains in verse 14. When Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law. You see that? There's something in the, in the natural way they function. And they do things that are written in the law. Let's, let's just take do not murder. Why don't they murder? Well, the inference is that the law is written on their hearts. Don't steal. There is a law written on their hearts. And so he's saying, how do we know that natural law exists? They do by nature. They do this. They function under it. It governs their lives. These ones, they're just like you. They're not raised. You're not raised Orthodox Jews. You're not raised under the Orthodox law of Moses. And yet their form of morality, even though it's inconsistent, their form of morality proves there is a law on their hearts. That's the essence of what he's arguing. In verse 
15, he advances this a tiny bit more, saying that this law of nature on the heart can reason accusation and defense both. That is, the law that is on the heart of the natural law man will argue something like, I did not steal that. This is what happened instead. It wasn't a real theft. He can, he can make that defense that proves the existence of the natural law. Or if it's accusing, it's saying, that person stole my sheep. You took my dog. You took my pie. How do they make these arguments? How do they justify these things if they don't have the law? There's a law written on their hearts. And that is his point of, of making these lines here. The natural law man will be condemned for not keeping this law. It says earlier in the passage, he will perish. Right? He will perish. Paul assumes we all know that the Gentile does not keep the whole natural law, but he has it nonetheless because it does govern his lifestyle. It governs the way they live. And what we need to see is that the natural law has the authority to expose the sin that renders them guilty and rightly deserving perish. See, perish and judge are the only two things that happen. Perish and judge. What happens to the Gentile? Perish. Paul says these without law will perish. Why? Because none of them keep it perfectly. They know it, but it will condemn them. You understand the reasoning that he's bringing to this? So now, let's think for a moment about the perishing and the judged. Let's compare these two groups of people. Sin, with or without law, those are two groups, sinning with the law, sinning without the law, and then perish or judged. Those are the two results of sinning with the law and without the law. Perish or judge, those are the two categories. And so do you realize what Paul is saying? If you sin without the law, you perish. Who wants that? Raise your hand. Sin without the law. Who wants perish? Nobody. Okay, who wants sin with the law and judged? Nobody. His, his point is not to make one of them a good option and one of them a bad option. Both of these options are horrible options. Nobody wants to face either one. Both of these go with the wrath of God and both of these perishing, judging are meted out, metered out, measured out according to sin. And those under the natural law will perish and the rest are judged and so what you see is what is a comparison of the lesser to the greater. And this is where I believe there is some real pressure exerted on the one with the law. So let me explain what I mean by the, the argument of the lesser to the greater. The unlawed, who's the unlawed? You and I, the Gentiles, right? The unsophisticated, the unlawed only have to keep that law. Let's say that the only bit of it that's left in your heart at this point, you know, maybe you're 10 generations away. Maybe you're very, very immoral people. And you do think it's wrong to murder. 
you do think it's wrong to steal. Maybe some of the other ones are fuzzy in your in your corporate memory. The unlawed only have to keep the natural law, right? But what of the lawed? What about those with the law? What kind of standard is held up against those who have the law? What is Paul saying about those with the law? Judged means distinguished. Okay, judged means to 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 be made known. Let me explain. It means to be held up to a picture. So the ones with the law are judged. What are we talking about? In this process of judging, we see two things. The man who is the law-guided man and being compared to the ideal. The law-guided man is going to be compared to the ideal, which is what? Law. The perfection of the law. The allowances of the law. The denials of the law. What is the law-guided man compared to? Everything it requires and everything it denies. The law-guided man is exposed to a vast picture of allowances and denials. He knows the law and he works to keep the law and he feels assured of his good standing. And yet the ideal that he is compared to is the embodiment of every bit of its perfection. Do you see why the standard for the one with a law is massively more difficult than the one who has the natural law? He's actually got the writings of Moses embodying what he is judged against. So, To be judged means the person is either shown to share a perfect likeness to the law or to be discovered doing, he's discovered doing what the law never does, or he's discovered not doing what the law requires. Do you see the two ways the law exposes him? He's found out to be doing what the law would never do, and he's found out to not do what the law requires him to do. This is what it means for a man to be judged under the law. He is exposed to all the ways that he is not a law-obeying man, according to his deeds. So, I would say that the judged is even more easily found to be as guilty as the unlawed. The man under the natural law is going to be found guilty because he doesn't keep the law of his own conscience. He doesn't keep the law of his own heart. How much more the man who has the law, the whole law. Consider the one who has been under the sophisticated law for generations. Consider the man listening to this sermon that Paul is is preaching to him. Consider what he is thinking about and realizing and asking himself, is God looking down at each little misstep in order to determine who will receive wrath and judgment? Does God see every single little word and thought 
that is not according to law to determine wrath? And then, as he sees and contemplates how the natural man fares, how the natural man will perish for not keeping his simple law, the natural man will perish for breaking his crude law. This man under the law of God is discovering that he is in much more peril, if possible, than the man under the natural law. He doesn't even know or understand. Look at Romans 3.20. He doesn't know or understand this, and, and we'll get to this eventually. It says, By the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. The man Paul is, is speaking to right now doesn't know this. He doesn't know that no man is going to be justified by the law. Right now, Paul is exposing him to his need as a lawbreaker. He's saying, you are hopeless. You are standing in the path of the wrath of God. But he doesn't yet know that the law will not save anybody. So deeds condemn. Deeds condemn. Deeds and secret deeds are revealed. That's what it says in verse 16. And the Gentile conscience will accuse and excuse or accuse and defend for the charges of guilt from verse 14. Look again with me. Verse 14. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law to themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, their thoughts, the meanwhile accusing or excusing one another in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. God's law written on the hearts and the conscience of the Gentiles will condemn. Will condemn. There's a day when men's secrets are judged by Christ according to the gospel that Paul is preaching and that what he is explaining to his audience here. And so far, this is bad news. The gospel to this point, the letter to this point is bad news. It is meant to expose you. It is meant to help you understand how needy you are. You are not a, a rich person standing before God. You are, you are not a meritorious man or woman before God. You are desperately needy. Whether you are a Gentile or whether you are a Jew, you stand in this terrible path. God's law written on the heart of Gentiles will condemn them. There's a day, he says there in verse 16. There's a day. This is pretty fascinating. Men's secrets are judged by Christ. Secrets that are revealed in the day according to Paul's gospel is coming to a, a very, very sharp point for this moral man who more likely than not is, strictly speaking, the Jewish man who has the Mosaic law. It can also be the highly, highly ethical sort of person. But what he realizes, I think, for the first time, and what should be realized, is that the standard of judgment... For a lawkeeper, 
is far more demanding than, than what he ever imagined. It's far more demanding than what any moral man has imagined. If your morality is the ground by which you find merit to stand before God, you have no idea how desperately condemned and hopeless you are. What charges are brought to the sophisticated person's conscience when he realizes that all of his deeds will come under God's scrutiny and that those deeds will determine his eternal fate? All that God has asked is that you keep the simple standards of law. We kind of start early in, in, in Romans thinking about what the simple requirements are. Love God, glorify God, worship God. Worship Him for His eternal majesty and deity. Honor Him by doing what is right at all time without exception. Any and every deviation from this perfection is a deed showing your sinfulness. Men sin. Men sin. And, and, and they sin unable to not sin. And part of Paul's point as we really dig into Romans here is to show men, is to show you and I that even good men are sinners. Good women are sinners. He only started using the word sin here for the first chapter and a half. We haven't seen the word sin. He just simply describes certain acts. You know that you and sin are like the shape of your person and your shadow? They're there is no such thing as a man or a woman who is not tied to and connected to a sin. Look at Romans 7.23. Romans 7.23. Some men really grapple with this problem. Some women grapple with this issue. And when they're honest, they say something like what Paul describes here in Romans 7.23. He says... I see another law in my members, which is kind of like saying in his, in his soul, in his being. I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into the captivity of the law of sin, which is in my members. You know there's a law of sin in people? It, it, it means it's, it's, it's kind of like a dictator. It, 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 it's sort of like a genetic defect, the law of sin. He says, there's a law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into the captivity of the law of sin which is in my members. A wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death. When we get to verse 16 here in chapter 1, he speaks about the secrets that are revealed in the day of Christ. Your secrets. Your secret sins. The secret secrets. 
All of these things brought to revelation in the day of wrath and in the day of Christ. Paul is pressing so hard. The the reason he compares the sin reality of Gentiles to the sin reality of Jews is because ethical people, developed people, sophisticated people tend to hold themselves in a different light. They just find excuse for themselves. And the point being made is is nobody is going to stand before God on his merit. Nobody is going to stand before God because he's such a jewel of mankind. Nobody will survive the day when men's secrets are revealed because you manage to be the only virtuous man or woman in your town. This is the point he's bringing home. He said, look at how Gentiles will fail to stand in that day. They will perish. Why? They don't keep the natural law in their hearts. So if that's true of them, what is true of you? There is a hopelessness regarding your conflict with sin. And this is what is brought to bear on the conscience of a man here in these two chapters of Romans, or what we also saw there in in Romans 7. Men and women have a conflict with sin's control. Sin commands men, orders men to seek their self-pleasure, orders them and commands them to rebel against the law of God. And it embarrasses you if and when you ever admit it. You cannot obey the law of righteousness perfectly. You can't. And since that is true, it requires the death of the offender. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. The bad news is that no men are half as good as they see themselves to be or as they think themselves to be. That's the bad news. But the gospel that Paul is not ashamed to preach, the gospel announces righteousness apart from the law. Paul is not ashamed to tell you that righteousness has been made available apart from the law. You and I are born understanding do good, get good. Tam di dai di. It's, it's, it's a principle that when you were a kid, if you obey your mother, if you obey your father, if you do good for your teacher, if you do good for your boss, reward is coming your way. You do bad, you get bad. The gospel says you are sinful in Adam and you cannot escape it. You are lost in Adam. You sin daily. Don't lie to God or your 
mom and your dad and say you don't. You are condemned in your sins. That is the judgment of God. But Paul announces a gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe, Jew first, also the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Look in chapter 1. Verse 17. In it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. What is the opposite of salvation? Damnation. Perish. Judged. How do you escape the judgment? How do you escape perish? Well, you've got to get out of that category of those men and women whose deeds show them unrighteous. How do you get out of that category? How do you get unlost? How do you get unperished? You need righteousness. Perfect righteousness. Where do you get it? Doing good from now until you die? No, it's already too late. You've done too much bad. You'll never catch up. You'll never pay it back. Where do you get perfect righteousness? You get it from Christ. You get it from the Lamb. The Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb who shed His blood and died to pay the sinner's punishment, to pay the sinner's debt. The wage of sin is death. You, sinner, will pay death. You can accept Christ's payment on your behalf, or you can die your own. Whose do you want? If Christ can pay your sin debt, then you can have the righteousness of Christ. That's the gospel. That is the gospel. And the bad news of the gospel is you're guilty. The good news of the gospel is it is by the grace of God a man can be saved. It's by grace through faith. Faith in the Savior who died to pay the sinner's debt. Let's pray. Almighty God, O oh Lord, may the self-righteous cringe at his self-love and his adoration. May he cringe. And may we learn to love and praise the one who is perfectly righteous. Oh God, what a great God who conceived to rescue us from our sinfulness that we cannot possibly escape. Thank you, God. We praise you in the name of the Son who is our risen Savior. Amen.